2: Let's get moving
3: with Maria, inspiration to spend a few minutes each day to get moving on the small things that can make a big difference in your life. Thank you for joining me today for Let's Get Moving. With me today is Dr. Narina Ramlikon. She is a renowned physiologist, sleep expert, and author, and we appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for being here today.
2: Thank you, Maria, so much for inviting me onto your podcast. It's a pleasure. Let's start out
3: and talk about the role of sleep in our lives and really the importance of getting enough sleep.
2: Well, I can't overemphasize, you know, how important sleep is for us. There's a reason why nature has designed us to spend a third of our lives sleeping. You know, I, I like to say there's a sort of intelligence in that physiological design And I've been helping people to sleep for over 25 years, as well as working on my own sleep as well, because as a baby and through into my 30s, I had problems sleeping. But having gathered so much professional experience and personal experience over the years, I've come to see that, you know, when we sleep well, it seems to restore us on so many different levels, Um, not just physically, but also mentally, emotionally, emotionally. And I would say spiritually as well. So, you know, people are sleeping well, they tend to feel happier, they're more creative, they feel inspired, they wake up with a sense of purpose. So sleep is very important for us, particularly given the speed at which our world is moving at and the pace of life, it's become even more important to restore us from the demands of our of our days.
3: What are you finding are the biggest problems? Why do some people have a tough time sleeping?
2: Well, I, it relates to what I've just said in a way that, you know, the speed of life. And I started noticing this 25 years ago. Uh, I'm probably going to show my age now when technology landed on the scene and I was working in the square mile in London square mile in the city. I was working as a physiologist in a health screening laboratory and corporate employees would come into the clinic for their health assessments, their medicals. And that's that's when I noticed that even the most tight-lipped of lawyers or investment bankers would open up and talk if I asked them how they were sleeping. It seemed to be that everyone had an issue with sleep. I wasn't alone with it because even back then I wasn't sleeping so well. And um, I think that the issue is to do with the speed of life, which is very Contra to us being able to get to sleep, you know, those of you and your listeners who have who have children or you may remember yourself, you know, if your if your child is hyperactive all day, they're not going to sleep so well. And our world almost forces us into a state of hyper arousal. That's a physiological term for an imbalance in the nervous system where the nervous system starts to run um, constantly in over arousal in survival mode. Um, I call it sympathetic overdrive, you know, the nervous system being divided into the sympathetic nervous system, the parasympathetic, the sympathetic being fight or flight, threat, go, go, go. And the parasympathetic, which is necessary for good sleep and restoration, that gets shut down. So our world is constantly demanding us to keep going over stimulation, mental stimulation. So often it's not even physical demand, it's mental demand our inboxes, social media, the news, constant information bombarding the brain, telling us we need to lean into life and do something.
3: So what is an appropriate amount of sleep for an adult?
2: Well, you know, it really varies. And I I get asked that question a lot Um, for the average human being between seven to nine hours per night. But it's, it's more than about number of hours. It's about quality of sleep and being able to hit those depths of sleep. Good, deep sleep and the right amount of REM sleep or rapid eye movement. And in Hindi, there's a word called sattvik in Sanskrit. Sattvik means pure. And I like to talk about sattvik sleep, pure sleep, the kind of sleep where you do wake up feeling physically, mentally, emotionally, um, spiritually restored. So it's not just about putting in hours. And of course, these days, there are so many wearable devices. And I also talk a lot about the pros and cons of measurement. And I'm sitting here with an aura ring on. But, you know, we can measure our sleep. We can turn our bedrooms into laboratories these days. And um, and it will tell us how much REM sleep and how much deep sleep we've had. The bottom line is we want to be aiming for seven to nine hours per night. At the moment, I'd have to say I'm sleeping about nine hours a night. I seem to be needing it. I seem to be needing to go to bed early and I wake up quite early. I'm a, I'm a lark, but I need it. And then there are times when I get by and a lot less And it it also fluctuates seasonally as well. And I encourage my clients to listen to the body. How do you feel when you wake up in the morning? And if you're getting five or six hours and you feel great, that's probably good for you. Okay. So what are some healthy sleeping
3: habits for those folks that just can't seem to get to sleep or have a hard time staying asleep? Are,
2: Are there some more healthy sleeping habits for them? Well, I have a huge sleep toolkit. I mean, I've written four books, you know. But let's start with, let's start simple, let's start practical. I've already alluded to the imbalance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic, the hyper arousal of the sympathetic nervous system, people running in survival mode. So based on the 25 plus years worth of my um, experience, I noticed time and time again that I was saying to people, whether it was corporate employees, whether it was children, whether it was professional athletes, I noticed I was saying these five things. So I came up with step one of my sleep methodology and what I call the five non-negotiables. And what this does is it acts as a kind of reset for the nervous system. So these five things I'm going to share with you, if your listeners do them for the next seven to 10 days, maybe 21 days, it depends on the individual, then it will start to reset the nervous system. And I'd like to, after I've told you the five things, Tell you a little bit about what I mean by it depends on the individual. Let's talk about individual differences. Let's talk about the five non-negotiables first. Number one, eat breakfast within 30 to 45 minutes of rising. Don't skip breakfast. Eat breakfast in the morning. Break fast. So, of course, at the moment, the whole popular thing of intermittent fasting and, and fasting, for my clients who can't sleep and I I've worked in psychiatry for 10 years as well, helping people with extreme mental health problems to sleep. So I've worked at the sharp end as well of the population. Even with them, eating breakfast, breaking fast within 30 to 45 minutes, that can start to shift the nervous system. And often people who don't eat breakfast will say, I don't ever feel like eating breakfast. I'm never hungry in the mornings. The thought of eating breakfast makes me feel sick. In my experience, you start breaking the fast, stabilizes blood sugar levels, steadies the nervous system, helps the body to start running in the parasympathetic nervous system and therefore making more melatonin at night. There's a complex physiology and biochemistry behind it, but that's it in a nutshell. And I take the time to explain it because often people want to fight me on that one. They'll they'll come up with a million reasons for wine your breakfast, you know? That's the first one. Number two, don't use caffeine as a substitute for food. Eat your food, then have your cup of tea or coffee. Don't use caffeine because the caffeine will overstimulate the sympathetic nervous system, which is, again, it's like a pendulum swing. The more you swing into the sympathetic nervous system, the more dampened down is the parasympathetic, which you need in order to sleep. Second one, then, is caffeine or cut it out altogether. No caffeine after 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Number three, hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. Aim to drink about two liters of water a day. And we're having some warm weather here in the U.K., at the moment. So, you know, trying to up that, particularly those of your listeners, you know, it's all about movement and getting fit and you're exercising a lot. And I had a hard session in the gym this morning. You know, you need to hydrate for your sleep biochemistry to work optimally. The brain needs to be well hydrated. Number four, get to bed earlier. Start entraining the body to receive rest earlier. Ideally, getting into bed around okay, somewhere between nine thirty and ten thirty. You don't necessarily have to be asleep, but resting. And it might be reading a book, a paper book, ideally, especially if you're a sensitive sleeper. We'll come to that in a minute. But reading a book, um, meditating, writing a journal, practicing some gentle breathing techniques, not. Wim Hof breathing, transformational, circular breathing, nothing too extreme, but gentle breathing. Um, But getting into bed earlier to prepare the body for rest, to decompress from the hyperstimulation of the day, to transition into the, the restful state, that is the precursor to then being able to hit the light sleep and then deep sleep stages. And people who are going to bed earlier, Tend to then be able to surf that amazing deep sleep before midnight that's so important for all of us they're able to access it so with so far, we have four non negotiables we've got breakfast, caffeine, water, getting into bed earlier, number five, cultivate a healthier relationship with technology in the evening. start to bring the light levels down you know uh, exposure to blue light is you know the research suggests that this suppresses production of melatonin ideally keep your phone out of the bedroom. Don't lie in bed scrolling. Don't look at your phone during the night. And if you're an addict like me, I'm wedded to my phone just as much as everybody else. So I have to switch my phone off and put it in another level of the house. It has to be switched off because if I wake up in that typical time between 2 and 4 a.m. and I wake up worrying about all the things that my brain will give me to worry about, some of them are valid and some of them are crazy things. But my brain, the mad monkey, the Buddhists call it, wants to worry about everything between two and four. And that's the time when I'm more likely to think, oh, I'll just go and look at my phone. So get yourself an old-fashioned alarm clock. Turn it away from you. Don't look at it when you wake up during the night. I'm, I'm now giving some more tips here. We've moved away from five non-negotiables. But, you know, those five things, the the breakfast, The caffeine, the hydration, the earlier to bed, the healthier relationship with technology, take more breaks from technology during the day, take tech breaks, go for walks without your phone, go to the bathroom without your phone, (laughs) eat your lunch, not looking at a screen, watch television, watch one screen, read from a book. All of this starts to de-excite the nervous system. And I've done a TED Talk, a TEDx called Come to Work and Rest, what I mean by that is build recovery into your day. So the more you have recovery in your day, the less hy- less hyperstimulation you take into the night, the more you're able to access those beautiful deeps, deep levels of sleep that we all need these days and all deserve. And, you know, we're living longer. Longevity. So let's look after ourselves. And sleep is like the beauty tonic. It's the golden ticket for longevity. Let's give ourselves good Deep restorative sleep, so we can live longer and healthier lives if we're going to live for longer, which it seems to be.
3: Right. Of your five non negotiables, the only one that really caught me truly by surprise was the eat breakfast.
2: Yes, I saw the look on your face. I'm like,
3: what? Eat breakfast? What does that have to do with sleeping?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I saw the look on your face when I mentioned breakfast. So, and I get asked that question a lot and I even get challenged by other sleep experts about that one. So that one's a really unique part of my sleep methodology. Um, I have noticed time and again, that when people aren't eating breakfast, they're more likely to rely on caffeine and stimulants. Their metabolism is kind of shut down. They're running sluggish. So they're also the ones who are less, more likely to make unhealthy life choices, drink more caffeine, not have the energy to exercise. And your podcast is about getting people moving. When they break the fast, you get that metabolic shift. It increases the energy levels. Now intermittent fasting can be a beautiful thing and I do it myself. But I do it when I'm in a kind of aromatherapy centered bliss. I'm on retreat. I'm very rested. I'm meditating, not when I'm rushing to get into a taxi to go to an airport or to go to a TV studio or to deliver a presentation online. Not when I'm all revved up or the teenagers come to stay. Those are the times when I really need to eat my breakfast. If we bring um, gender and age into it, women. Going into perimenopause and menopause and postmenopause, especially need to be eating breakfast in the morning if they're not because those are the that's the age group um, where or the life stage where sleep can really be affected. And this is the, the, the life stage as well, where women find they're gaining weight around the middle. So they give, they give breakfast a miss. But then what happens is they start producing more cortisol. And for everyone, cortisol levels rise as soon as you wake up in the morning, especially if the first thing you do when you wake up is you go rushing up into the head. And I ask all of my clients, what do you do first thing in the morning? And they say, oh, I get up and I go to the bathroom. No, no, no. What happens before that? You know, even while you're in bed, oh, I reach for my phone. I'm in my inbox. So they're already already in work have to do this must do this should do this then I've got to do this and then I've got to pick up the kids and then I've got to do this thing then I got to do the dry clean so the brain is already racing this signals the sympathetic nervous system to kick in produce the cortisol the adrenaline over time and this pattern becomes sustained we then start producing more cortisol And the cortisol makes you lay down fat around the middle. Now, the more cortisol you're producing, the more adrenaline you're producing, the more caffeine you're drinking to fuel all of this frenetic activity, the more the sympathetic nervous system is switched on. The parasympathetic is shut down. So when you wake up in the morning and you eat and steady the blood sugar levels, the adrenaline levels drop, cortisol levels drop. It's telling the hunter-gatherer brain, you're safe. You're living in a world where there's food. Parasympathetic kicks in. And you start start to produce the well-being hormones as well, serotonin and oxytocin. So you feel safe, you feel good. We sleep when we feel safe. So you start with the rhythm of safety and that continues through the day. And so you're more likely to produce melatonin at night when the light levels drop. You know, if you start in the mode of unsafety in the inbox, running on caffeine, running on starvation, then that's more likely to perpetuate that rhythm as you go through the day.
1: That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again.
0: You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on KSLPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: For those people who like their morning exercise, should they be, can they exercise before their breakfast or. Do you suggest maybe a small bite to eat and then exercise?
2: So you've got to play with what works for you. Exercise is important. Now, even when I was running marathons in my 30s and 40s, I knew that I needed to eat a little something before. So often I'd have something like a kind of made up energy bar, wholemeal toast with peanut butter and honey on it, and then go out. And especially if I was doing my long run, um, the pre-marathon training, you know, for some people they couldn't tolerate that. So you've really got to, I advise your your listeners to join the dots. Are you sleeping well? Or are you having difficulty getting to sleep difficulty staying asleep, the two most common sleep problems. If you are, and you're a competitive A type personality who's a sensitive sleeper, then maybe for you, you need to eat something small, and then do your exercise. So tomorrow morning, I'm doing HIT. I will wake up in the morning. I do my meditation. After about half an hour, I will eat a bowl, small bowl of something high in fat, protein, carbohydrate, then take my dog for a walk, then come back and hit the hit. You know, 45 minutes work pretty hard and then fuel within half an hour of exercising, because again, at my age, I'm fighting for my muscle. I don't want to start cannibalizing my muscle. But, you know, I'm in that age group right now. Now, for people who exercise in the evening, a lot of people because of convenience um, and work schedules and preference like exercising in the evening. But if you are a sensitive sleeper, um, a type personality, competitive, driven and suffering from those two common sleep problems, difficulty getting to sleep difficulty staying asleep and exercising in the evening doesn't work so well might might not work so well for you so this evening actually what i'm doing straight after this is a yin yoga class at eight at seven o'clock um uk time 7 p.m and that's going to help to decompress and reset my nervous system and it's going to help me to uh just reset so i can sleep really well tonight after after quite a full-on quite a stimulating day you know So for those of your listeners who are exercising quite hard in the evenings, delay your sleep time by maybe half an hour, 45 minutes, get less sleep, but decompress. So do some form of yin yoga. That might be 15 minutes of going into three postures. And I talked to footballers about professional athletes, the Chelsea football club, notably years ago, I did some work with them. So you, you, first of all, you go into child's pose, breathing in that posture for three to five minutes then legs up the wall or if, if that's if your hamstring and your back and your body allows or just legs elevated over a bolster or cushions or edge of a sofa or something. Breathing in that posture for three to five minutes, arms out to the side, allow the belly breathing to kick in and then into Shavasana or corpse pose. So we've got child's pose, elevated legs into corpse pose, 15 minutes in total, breathing in that. Posture, And I, I do that if I'm running a presentation with a different time zone and I'm presenting late at night, then I will decompress with that same yin routine because it's almost my nervous system feels like I've been exercising when I'm presenting late.
3: So then let's talk about different personalities and how that does impact us.
2: Yeah, and I lo- I'm a great believer in keeping it simple. And, you know, there are different ways of classifying people as sleep chronotypes, according to their chronobiology. You might have the owls and the larks. The owls go to bed late, wake up late. The larks, like me, are boring in the evenings, wake up in the morning early, are irritating. And then most of the population will fall somewhere between the two. They can flex their style a bit. But, you know, on either side of a normal distribution curve, you have extreme owls, extreme larks. I don't use that so much. But what I do use, what I, I've come up with is my own sleep classifications. Simple, sensitive sleepers, martini sleepers. Sensitive sleepers, now let's start with martini. I'm showing my age. It's the cocktail from the 70s. The, 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 the cocktail of the 70s that you could drink anytime, anyplace, anywhere. Your martini sleepers can sleep anytime, place, anywhere, virtually. They can sleep on a pinhead, you know, um sensitive sleepers they need things to be just right they need their side of the bed they need the right smells if you change the laundry detergent they won't sleep that's really you know uh sensitive to noises around them um when they go on holiday they're an amazing five-star hotel and they can't sleep because it doesn't feel like their own um bed so some people if you look at the work of dr elaine aaron who came up with the The psychology, the the model of the highly sensitive person, the HSP, that plays into my sensitive sleeper a little bit. There's some overlap there. The highly sensitive people are more likely to be sensitive sleepers, but it's not always the case. So I'm an HSP. I'm highly sensitive. um, And I used to be a very sensitive sleeper up until my 30s. I now sleep really well most of the time. I have learned how to sleep really well and I'm making a living out of it. You know, it's, it comes from a personal place as well. But sometimes if you throw me into an unfamiliar environment that I'm not so comfortable in, such as last week when I was in a retreat in France, where for all sorts of reasons, for the whole week I didn't sleep that well. But on holiday these days, I do sleep pretty well and I rest well on flights. And so most of the time I now sleep really well. So sensitive sleepers can learn how to become more martini-like by taking on board my techniques. Martini sleepers can become sensitive sleepers as a result of stress, life events, major life events, hormonal changes. You know, women who have slept well all their lives and start going to menopause, perimenopause, and suddenly they become sensitive. So dividing them into those two extremes, you know, I think it it helps people because the five step methodology, the five non-negotiables is particularly important for the sensitive sleepers. It helps to reset their nervous system, because they really want to make sure that they're not overstimulating the nervous system, that they're not overproducing cortisol. So the sensitive sleepers in particular, for example, probably shouldn't be fasting, because they have a natural tendency to produce cortisol.
3: Recently, I've seen a bunch of different surveys, studies on napping, and they really contradict each other, whether it's good to nap or not good to nap, or, you know, how long is a good nap? Give us your
2: thoughts on napping. So I'm a great fan of napping. And if you know listen to my TEDx talk, the uh, Come to Work and Rest, you'll hear me talking about the importance of napping. Now there are different types of naps, scientifically, based on their duration and why you're doing them. So you have people who are working shift night shift workers, who'll have to do a certain type of napping, um, or, or people who are travelling long haul flights. Um, airline pilots and and, and that sort of thing. You know, there are different types, different durations of naps. But the nap that most of us can benefit from and corporate employees who are not working night shifts is the power nap. And the power nap is this. It's anything between 10 to 20 minutes, which is it's carried out at some point between 2 and 4 p.m. No later than 4 p.m. Otherwise, it will affect your ability to get to sleep at night. And it's not actually sleeping. It's not hardcore sleeping. It's taking yourself into a state of rest. So you could do it sitting in a chair with your eyes closed, like I'm doing right now, focusing in on your breathing. And in fact, I probably did a version of this this afternoon after I had a meeting. I finished at 3.30. And what it was, was I practiced TM or Transcendental Meditation, which I do twice a day. And so I did my TM practice at 3.30. And at at some point in the TM, it started to go a little bit towards the end, almost I felt so relaxed. And I know it was state in in terms of my state of consciousness, I was probably going into a kind of nap, almost light sleep state. But the research shows that even doing this for five to 10 minutes, closing your eyes, feet on the ground, sitting upright, if you think you're going to fall asleep, set a timer or have what's called a caffeinated nap, a caffeine nap where you have a cup of tea or coffee before you go into your nap, then close your eyes, sit, relax, listen to a little, um, you know, a a napping piece of music or a guided meditation or just focusing on the breathing. Um, In fact, I have recorded lots of meditations on Amazon Audible that that can be used during a 20-minute nap. Um, And the research shows that you'll come out of that with enhanced mental performance, cognitive performance, ability to process complex tasks and remember, memories enhanced, reaction time is enhanced. So it's a a really great pick-me-up. And um, actually years ago, before the pandemic, I I love experimenting with extremes. And I did um, Hong Kong and back in three days, 72 hours, running a leadership program for an investment um, bank And I traveled out on Tuesday, I landed on the Wednesday, I delivered two programs on the Wednesday. I tried to sleep on the Wednesday night, traveled back on the Thursday, arrived in UK on the Friday morning. No, on the Thursday night, actually. Um, But throughout that time, I napped. I did lots and lots of napping. And the research shows that human beings are remarkably well-equipped to nap on the go. And that as hunter-gatherers, that's once what we did for our survival, we napped, and hunted on the go. Now we don't really need to do that, but certainly the, the power nap. 10 to 20 minutes, everyone can do it. Even people who say, I can't sleep during the day. It's not sleeping, it's resting, it's relaxing.
3: All right, Doctor, our, our time is about to run out. So I want to give you a couple of minutes just to kind of wrap up and leave people with something that you think is important.
2: The idea, and I speak about this in, my, in, my, in the fourth book where finding inner safety, because I've always known, that, and my first three books are very strongly about sleep, but I always knew that at the core of it, being able to sleep well is about feeling safe. We sleep when we feel safe, especially if you're a sensitive human being you know then you the hunter gatherer can then you know retire into their cave and sleep on their mat of leaves and just let go sleep is a letting go healing process but we need to feel safe in order to do that so make choices that enable you to feel safe so life can be tough it can be heartbreaking it can be challenging uh certainly the last few years with the pandemic So look after yourself, make healthy choices. Every choice you make from the minute you wake up in the morning, you are making choices that are gonna take you closer to a good night's sleep or further away from it. Every choice. So make good choices, live well, love well, and you'll sleep better. And there's a whole movement around positive psychology, you know, optimism, realistic optimism and happiness and gratitude. The more grateful we are, the more thank yous we genuinely feel the more joyful we feel, the more we laugh, the more we hug, the more we play, the better we'll sleep. It's kind of common sense, really. But um, we don't always make time for that. So live well, love well, and you'll sleep well.
3: Thank you so much. Thank you. My guest today has been Dr. Narina Ramlikan. She is a renowned physiologist and sleep expert. And thank you for listening to Let's Get Moving this week. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Instagram and Facebook so that you can stay updated on all of our latest episodes.
0: A gun in the
1: face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought...